All right, everybody, welcome back. Nomad Strength Show. I am Ross Hillier, your host, and today we have a really fun episode because we got to do something I don't usually get to do, and that is record the episode in person. There's only so many people that live in the direct vicinity of where I am, so I always take it as a real treat when I get to be able to meet up with people in person. The conversations are always awesome, and today was no different. Today I'm joined by Zachary Hansen. Zach is the author of Turning Feral, which automatically reels me right in because the cover of the book is awesome, the title of the book is awesome. And Zach has a really great story. He lived the corporate AI tech life and decided that he was just going to move into the mountains in the random smallest area of Idaho and learn how to live in the mountains, learn to be a mountain man, learn how to farm, learn how to hunt and trap and live in a society that forces you to have these survival preparedness, real world skills. And we got into a lot of that with this conversation today. We talked a lot about the book. We talked a lot about preparedness and making these decisions. And he's got two young children. So how do you raise children in this environment? How do you teach them to be competent in the outdoors? Teach them things like hunting, skinning animals, being okay with death. And it was a really fun conversation to have. Zach and I had a great workout and a good run prior to training. And uh, this was just a really fun episode. There's going to be a lot of other things that come out uh, that I'm hopefully going to be doing with Zach in the future. So without further ado, let's get into this podcast episode of the Nomad Strength Show with Zach Hansen. Okay, well, we're doing a, okay, well, we're doing a in-person yeah. pod, which I don't get to do very often, which is awesome. And then after we get to run and train and have coffee, that usually makes the whole thing better anyways, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so the run, train, coffee first, yeah, right. then podcast. And then podcast. I want yes. to be clear, as people see me struggle to lift my coffee cup <laughs> right. to my face, there's a reason <laughs> And then the added bonus of being in person and then having uh, the ability to do it is we get much cooler video versions yep. of stuff. So we've got, you know, it, it, it also helps when we've got sweet background setups too. But most of the time we podcast, it's always just, you know, yep. a MacBook screen. Sometimes the, no video. Sometimes no video at all. So I, like I'm always pumped when we get to do something different. But um, for those that are just listening... Welcome back to the show. My guest today, I'm actually down at his place here locally, yep. Zach Hansen. Hello. Yep. Now we can wave to the camera, all the people watching at home. Um, you and I connected, it's been not not too long, maybe just a few weeks or a couple months or so, yeah. and this connected this summer. And I don't even remember how. I know it was through Instagram, um, but it was I, I saw the book, and that was the the title was what? Like you, you did, you did good on the title because yeah. that's a good way to get me, like sucked in right away. Especially called turning feral, right? Yep. Um, but we've been going back and forth and realizing that you know you're local, which is awesome. We have a lot of the same interest, hunter and uh, outdoorsman, all this kind of stuff, and we're planning some cool things to maybe get together this fall some more. Um, but first of all, thanks for making time, man. I'm I'm pumped to wrap with you for a little. No, bit. no, well, thanks. To you, uh, I've been a little hard to pin down the past few weeks, so I appreciate you hanging in there and making the drive to where I'm at. Oh yeah, in order to come in, get a workout in, and hang out a little bit in person. At for those who are listening, 6 a.m. Yeah, we got a 6 a.m. run and then trained for a little while. Did a did a fun little imam and had some good training session. According to my whoop score, we decided that the whoop said it was satisfactory. So yeah. We, so did we passed. Good. We passed. We did good this morning. Um, but I really wanted to, I mean, there's a ton of stuff I want to get into, but since I, I've already mentioned the book, I, I imagine that this is going to be kind of the backstory into a lot of the other avenues that we can kind of spin off. Yeah. Um, because you have a cool story about, you know, turning feral. And I like, again, the title of it's just killer, but why don't you just give me the story? 
Yeah. Like the story without giving me the story. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. how did this come about where you were doing the, the corporate thing, living the city boy life, yeah. and then decided I'm doing the Pulling exact the plug, opposite. Jumping <laughs> out of the airplane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, first off, the title and the cover of the book, that's all you get. You know, and that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's the coolest part, and it goes downhill from there. So I made sure I nailed that part to get people bought in. <laughs> No, but the story is one I feel a lot of people today can resonate with. Yeah. Um, the way I like to tell it is the reason I wrote the book, the reason I moved out to the woods, the reason I decided to later in life learn to hunt and trap and do all these different things is I was stuck in a role that I feel like society kind of morphed me mm. into or kind of pushed me into, which was the whatever you can go to university graduate doesn't matter a degree just graduate things will fall in your lap um and you need the white picket fence keep up with the joneses that's your ticket to happiness yeah um, and i did it i followed it to a t it was a struggle you know it was nothing like you know silver spoon handed to me but i fought for that life and then when i got there it was not fulfilling mm. you know it was a lot of planes, which was glamorous at first, you know, flying all over the world for different things in my corporate role in artificial intelligence, but it just started eating away at my soul. Mm. So, you know, after an unexpected divorce, I had been dabbling and hunting at the time and came out west, uh, moved to Idaho, found a place in the middle of nowhere and just jumped in with both feet. So, I mean, that's really the 30,000 foot view. It was just this existence that I was having where when I, if at that time I were to have looked in the mirror and said, hey, if everything went away, all of our modern world comforts, the grocery stores, the you know ability to go to a gas station, get gas, what would happen? Mm. And my corporate world self before moving out west and learning any sort of skill set had to be honest and say, my family would die. Mm. They yeah. would, without the help of other people so you, around me. So you literally like had zero experience of any outdoor stuff at all prior, or was there any? Because you, I mean, you grew up in the South. Yeah. You know, we talked like we have. We were in the area where I've been many yep. times, and so, I mean, and maybe it's just my impression of that area. It seems like everybody has some kind of experience if you're down in that yeah. area. But I mean, what was your previous? outdoors hunting life like prior to making that decision you said correctly south carolina yeah. where i'm from so i grew up on the periphery of hunting i had family members who hunted my direct family my dad my granddad they didn't hunt mm -hmm. um i had friends who hunted but for whatever reason it just wasn't an interest for me there in that time that i was growing up um but i like to trail run you know and, and part of my journey was i've always been into fitness yeah. So there are elements of fitness that took me outdoors, but it wasn't necessarily learning skills. Like I did a lot of go ruck challenges when they first started, like back in yeah. 05, 06. Yeah. Um, you know, other ultra marathons, but I never had what I'd call outdoor skills. I wasn't doing like land nav or, yep. you know, overnighting in the woods. I mean, the first time I ever camped out overnight you know, outside of like an overnight go ruck yeah. where you never slept. Right. Was when I was in my late thirties, when I moved to Idaho. So that's interesting because that decision in, in the time period, I think is what's the time in your life. Yeah. You know, like mid, mid to late thirties, making that decision, there's already so much stuff that you've built up yeah. to that. I mean, like you've had a, in a, a, life. a whole adult life up to that point. So like how much, unlearning was there or like the actual process of you moved out here yep. and now you're like, okay, I've got to figure this out. Right. Like where do you even start? Uh, eating servings of humble pie every day. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely. And I, I think if we talk about mindset, things like that, I think one of the elements that helped me in that transition where where do you start? Well, you start with YouTube. You know, we're in a very lucky <laughs> spot right. where, you know, whatever you need to learn. And I talk about it in the book, like whether that's keeping the fire in my wood burning stove at the cabin I bought yeah. lit. Yeah. Fire needs oxygen. You need to make sure the flue is open. 
I didn't know that. Right. So, you know, I'd fight cold. A handful handful of cold nights. Exactly. (laughs) But YouTube, finally falling on the sword, asking people for help um, was good. But it's also just a level of grit to say, like, you know what? No matter what the outcome is, I'm going to figure this out. Mm. Um, And I attribute the ability to do that without much question just to my background in athletics. Like, I wrestled in high school. I've done jujitsu since I was 15. You know, I did crossfit for the longest time before i finally you know got tired of getting injured and then yeah you know just had that path of just athletics and pushing yourself and trying to do things that are tough yeah um but it was always in the vein of doing that to try to feel somewhat alive in my past just right white picket fence life in suburbia when you're and that's interesting because when you when you literally just throw yourself into the deep end on mm-hmm. stuff like that, you you're forced to do everything at once. Yep. Whereas the the model or the advice that a lot of guys give is to not do that. Yeah. <laughs> like pick like learn skills and and stack skills. Yeah. Right. Like figure out how to do this then figure out how to do this learn you know it's like there's steps it's like to a linear it. progression right well and and not even so much linear but it's more like don't overwhelm yourself mm. trying to do a million things because you need to get good at all these things right so it's like mm. when you're starting this you have to do everything at once and so i was gonna time timeline wise also did you have any kids yet at this point so this was prior to the kids which that is nice to yeah. a degree, right? It is. I was, we were very lucky that, <laughs> you know, in my past life, I did not have kids. Right. So when uh, we went through divorce, very amicable. Yep. Um, good split, all things considered. And, you know, there were no kids. Right. Now that I have kids, I could understand how much that would have changed the whole calculus. Yeah. Of how things would have played out. Like, does that even... I mean, is that decision even made if there's kids in the picture at that, like the same decision that Probably you Probably not. You know, right? Reality. And, and so when you're, like I, I asked, you know, where do you start? And you talk about the fireplace and stuff, but like where was your head as far as what are, what's the priority list? Like what are the things I, I need to figure out first, right? Because I mean, like the place where you bought this cabin, it's pretty remote. Yep. Like it's not, I mean, we're, you're looking at, you know, civilization is not super far away, but most amenity-based things... There are no amenities out there's there. There's nothing. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you, you'll you have to drive an hour to get to, like, a gas station. Four hours. <laughs> yeah, right? And so it's, like, there, you're not close to anything. So yeah. what what's the priority list for you when you're out there? Like, what do I need to learn? What do I have to learn how to do first? And then, like, what's what can wait? What's yeah. the next few things? Well, the, the list is infinitely long right right but, <laughs> it's all important yeah but to your point it's the basics and that's what's kind of cool about it is heat yep you know we're, we're we have a month where we get pretty warm yep the rest of it's snow covered and cold yeah you know at least in the mornings right so it's learning to chop down trees yep get them into rounds split them keep them dry and how do you burn it mm. so fire right yeah. it's just like Basic stuff. That was a big learning curve for me because I come from the southeast where it's pretty much warm year round. Yep. We didn't have wood burning stoves. Uh, yeah, that was all new. So yep. there's that element. Um, the toys you have up there, and I say toys, toys in my realm equal chainsaws. Yeah. You know, side by side snowmobiles, the things that you need to have just to operate, to navigate, move around. Right. Like yeah. So how do you get gas? Yeah. Right. So then it's like, how do you get a barrel? How do you stand it up? How do you mm. keep the you know, gasoline good for an extended period of time? Things like that. Um, food. Generators. Yep. Power. The list is kind of exactly what you'd expect it to sure. be. But those were kind of the initial things like, hey, how do I get over this learning curve? Yeah. And then it's evolved into the more interesting things for my wife and myself. It's like, OK, how do we sustain food? Mm. How do we raise kids here and educate? How do you actually live yeah. in the situation? Precisely. Yeah. So it's an ever-evolving list, but it started with just basic human fundamentals. And I think that's what interested me most about moving out there, pursuing 
a lifestyle of being an outdoorsman, hunting, trapping, the whole lot, because all of the challenges that I set for myself when I was in suburbia, you know, I was doing competition jujitsu all the time. My ex-wife was a world champion in jujitsu. So our weekends were just IBJJF tournaments yep. everywhere. Then it was ultra marathons. Yep. It was all these things. But the interesting part about all of those pursuits, there's always an escape button. Mm. Tap out. You know, quit the race. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, go to the grocery store if you <laughs> decide you want something else. Right. And there were no real consequences to the actions. This flips it on its head. Like, you don't get the house warm and it's negative 15 degrees outside, like there's real consequences. You don't fall a tree, get it cut up, get it in your woodshed, you're SOL. Yeah. You don't have a med kit and the roads avalanched in and it's snowing and they can't get a life flight chopper in. What are you going to do? Yeah. So it was just this ability for me to really put true consequences on the table, mm. which is something that I'd always lacked to really push me to learn these things in a sequential, but you know, priority order. Do you think that cuts down like the learning curve on a lot of that stuff because of the pressure that you're putting on I'm sure. yourself to do I'm it? Sure. Like, it's kind of like that, I better figure this out. You know, yeah. that's that same mindset, like, or there's real bad stuff that can happen if I don't. Right. Like that at least pushes the pushes you internally to like want to get it figured out like there's no way to procrastinate yeah a lot of that stuff and that non-procrastination has taken a full 180 from how i viewed it when i first went up there when it was just me for a little while Mm. then it was my wife and i and then all of a sudden comes our first child Mm -hmm. in a town of 35 people at the end of an 80 mile dirt road in the middle of the woods Oh, like there's real preparation here. Yeah, it has to go down. So I, part of what I do is I, I'm a volunteer firefighter, um, search and rescue. So we do a lot of training up there. This past weekend, um, like I'm swift water rescue technician certified okay. for getting in the river, pulling people out of cars and yep. things like that. Um, we were doing a re-up on the certification there this past weekend. So there's great training that's going on, but, you know, it, it was all a little bit of things were never real, right? Things were never right. real until they're real. Right. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, we were going through this, we're prepared, we're prepared. And then not this past May, but the prior May, my wife was five months pregnant with our second child. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I have a fire radio so I can be on dispatch with our county. Um, for any incidents that happen up in Atlanta, because we're such a small community. But my wife and I, uh, we had a babysitter, a nanny, an mm-hmm. older lady who lives up there full time in Atlanta. She's now passed away, but she was watching our youngest. And my wife and I were like, well, we have a little break. This is one of the beautiful things about living in the middle of nowhere. Our back door opens to 3,000 acres of national forest land. Yeah. So we're like, work break, let's go for a walk. We have two dogs. 130 pound Kane Corso and a little 15 pound Shih Tzu. Um, and I would always put money on the Shih Tzu to take down a bear or a mountain lion <laughs> over the Kane Corso any day. But we went on a walk and we have a little ring road that's just dirt um, kind of right in front of our house. And my wife was walking downhill, very much showing pregnant. And our dogs get the zoomies. And our 130 pound Kane Corso is just bulldozing around and my wife's about 30 yards in front of me downhill kind of a steep grade sure and i yelled to her i said flash gordon that's our big dog has the zoomies and about that time he runs right past me beelining down towards her and i'm pretty sure he's got depth perception issues because he likes to kind of suck up near you yep but when i called out to her she turned into him like from the backside, looking back over her shoulder and he saw her and he tried to put the brakes on Just and he did. turned sideways, took her out right behind the knees. Oh. And I've never seen anything like in slow motion so much in my life, but within a millisecond, her feet were over her head and the back of her head 
found the one rock sticking out. The oh road. my goodness! And it sounded like a twenty-two rifle went off oh. from her head cracking it, and completely lifeless. And just knocked her out cold. Knocked her out cold. Oh my goodness! But I thought she was dead. Like she was just completely lifeless, and you know, stunned. Like I just ran straight to her, and it was like a movie. There was just like a slow puddle of blood right behind her head. Oh my gosh. And I did the one thing I'm trained not to do, which is move up her head and yeah. <laughs> be like, well, hey, wake up. And within a millisecond, like she was completely unresponsive. Um, so in my head, she's dead. So I make the hundred yard dash back to the house. And again, this is where it comes back to like training being yeah. important, being prepared. And um, thankfully we were in this situation. Ran into the house, grabbed my fire radio, told our nanny, I'm like, hey, you're going to be on our at that time, one-year-old detail, like we're probably flying out of here and grab my radio. And I had lifelight in the air within two minutes. Wow. And uh, thankfully in our little town talking about being prepared, this is a beautiful thing about Atlanta, Idaho, where we're at, we actually have the most EMS personnel per capita than any city in Idaho <laughs> because there's 35 of us 35. and there's like <laughs> nine certified <laughs> right. EMTs, um, which is great. And the whole town swarmed because yeah. they heard we had our little ambulance, you know, our like 1970s ambulance up the hill. And I kind of stepped away, but thankfully it was a clear day and life flight was there within 25 minutes. Wow. Had her loaded up and we were, she and I were both in the St. Alphonsus trauma center here within 50 minutes of the accident. Wow. Nine staples, lots of vertigo later, no long-term damage no damage to concussion you know. probably yeah exactly yeah. Um, yep. no issues to the baby or anything else wow. but that was like the biggest eye-opening moment for me because like anything you get up to a town where you're trying to learn things you get a little lackadaisical like things aren't real but you know up here there are consequences because that easily could have been on a day with cloud cover it was yeah. a beautiful bluebird day so they were able to fly no problem yeah but it, it was that was the biggest thing for me now with our kids, just to eye open, like taking medical courses, yeah. knowing how to put on a tourniquet, knowing how to do this, that, and the other, which all bleeds over into other pursuits like elk hunting in the woods for a week, right? Yeah. Having these skills is helpful. Hopefully never use them, but consequences are real out here. It's, man, it's such a, there's the prepper and prepping conversation usually has so many different avenues that people kind of romanticize i think mm -hmm. and every and like we're sitting in front of a giant gun safe right like yeah. that's always the that seems to be the first place everybody goes when i'm talking prep it's like i need to load up on guns and yeah. ammo and like all this kind of stuff and i have a, a like one or two buddies that always have a, a much better way of thinking about this kind of stuff yeah and it's always like sure that's going to be helpful but it's like do you know how to apply tourniquet yep like do you know how to clean water you know, like there's these things that we think are way more important in an emergency, like grid goes down situation Yep. because of what like walking dead shows us. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, you need a crossbow and right. a 30-06. Right. Good. But it's like, there's, there's other more practical, but also more necessary skills to learn. And the medical part of it, I think mm -hmm. is something that a lot of people overlook just from like a, a basic trauma care yeah. standpoint, you know, like in this exact instance, like you, you said, you did the one thing you're not supposed to, but I think a lot of people would even, you know, know that in that moment, you're like, I should have, I should know how to do something yeah. in this situation, right? Whether it's uh, keeping stable, whether it's, or, or having the, the radio, yep. like those types of things, I think people overlook a lot because it's always like guns and food, are at the top of everybody's mind. And yes, that's important, but you talk about heat. Like yep. we talk about medical stuff. We talk about water. And I, there's just, I think a lot of gaps that people have in, and then where this conversation has become more popular yeah. in the last few years. Like it's almost kind of trendy for people to be like, I'm going to, I'm going off grid. I'm doing this thing. Right. And thinking that it's like some glamorous yeah. existence. Like, Sucks. Right, like, it, <laughs> like they're just going to do it. Yeah. 
and and it's and it's going to be oh I'll just drop in I'll like I'll have this beautiful garden and it's like dude you've never even grown like a pepper plant in your windowsill yeah like you're and now you've got you you just bought six acres you have no idea what to do with yeah you know so it's like there's levels it's like incre- all this. incrementality you know <laughs> yeah. people talk to me like hey like we mentioned I didn't have kids yeah. I had the uh, means and ability to kind of go all in right. and learn the hard way. But when people talk about this stuff or I talk about you know, living off grid or um, being out in the middle of nowhere, I tell people like there are things you can do. Like you don't have to leave suburbia. Maybe that's a goal. Yeah. You're not right. But like away. you said, you can start <laughs> to grow that pepper plant in your windowsill. Yeah. You can go do a sheepdog response course and learn how to, yep. you know, protect yourself, protect your family, get basic medical knowledge um that can help save your life and like you said it's it's those things you don't think about and you know, just one more anecdote that was recent for us at yeah. cabin is um small town 35 so we have our co-op for power yep we run um you know, water generator on oh, our nice. river so as a town we have really janky power poles that go around sure. so we have what i would say is intermittent power okay so we're on a power grid locally, um, but it goes down all the time. Yeah. So you have generators, you play with all these backups. We also have a co-op for water where we have water catchment at the top of town. We do light treatment, very good, clean water, all of that. Come out of a spring in the mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but for the first time in the four years we've been up there, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I with two young kids, mm-hmm. and we need baths, and all this stuff, need bottles, go to the sink. Turn on the faucet. Mm. Air. Huh. What happened? Well, you know, water catchment system, the pipes and everything, there was a a leak somewhere Mm. above our place. So we were getting no water. And it it was an interesting eye-opening thing for me because that was just one of the things I hadn't really taken into consideration much or hadn't tested. I just took it for granted that I was always going to go to the sink yeah. Always going to turn it on and there'll always be water. And this went on for five days. Wow. Of no water. And that was a test. Luckily, you know, we did have like some five gallon, like a lot of one gallon jugs. Sure. And a couple five gallon water things that we just happened to have that I bought on a whim a long time ago um, that were sitting there. I'm like, I guess it's time to dust it off. Mm-hmm. But we have natural springs. So I was having to get and go and hike side by side and hike, go fill up five gallon jugs consistently for five days just to come back and, you know, sponge bathe the kids, yep. do the dishes. And it was so surprising how difficult that made life. It wasn't impossible, right? but it was within, you know, five minutes of turning that sink on no water being like, oh, our life has changed for the next foreseeable future yeah and you have no idea when it's gonna if it's yeah. even gonna come back on well we have and, one guy who works on the stuff and he's going around with a spade and shovel trying to figure out where this leak, where is, the leak is with some duct tape right yeah, so it's right. uh it could be a day it could yeah. be weeks and you know thankfully they found it fixed it and um, all better now but yeah it's those things that people i don't think about the basics that are so mm-hmm. easy to take it for granted um and I think that's what would kill more people in an event than anything else. It's not going to be a gun yeah. or anything else that keeps you safe when you're in your big city in Dallas, Texas, and all of a sudden you're in a complex with 200 other tenants and you turn on your faucet and all of a sudden nothing comes on and it's 100 degrees outside. Yeah. That's what I think would lead to chaos quicker than anything else. Yeah. And, and you know, there's it. I think there's the... It's not a stat, but it's like a prediction stat mm-hmm. type of thing where they say if, you know permagrid goes all the way off it's something like above 75 percent yeah is is something that they estimate right like i don't know how they go to figure that but they say like 75 percent of the of the population dies within six months oh, or something like that yeah absolutely. and i and that seems long in this scenario like i probably would imagine a lot goes sooner than that but it's because of stuff like that not because it's going to be like some giant you know, battle in the street, people, I mean, that probably would happen because of the panic to some degree, but it's going to be stuff like starvation yep. and dying of thirst, or depending on the time of year and where you are, no heat, you're yep. freezing to death or like heat strokes, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, and it makes me think too, it's all of these things that were just 
basic knowledge that we had like less than a hundred years ago forever. Yeah. I mean, like literally we had all of these things as practical skills that we knew forever. And so when people talk about this, like we talk about like going off grid is becoming mm -hmm. kind of popular and they're doing, and, and there's two examples of, of ways that I've seen it done where you do like the modern version of going off grid where yep. you've got like the solar stuff, you've got all the generators, mm -hmm. you've got like this thing. And then there's like, I call it like the prairie version where it's like, no, we just have candles. Yep. We have a wood stove mm -hmm. and it's like, and, and we get our water from the, it's like, we, we just live how they did 200 years ago. Yep. Like that worked for a lot of people for a long time, yep. you know? And, and so when you're talking about doing these things, learning these skills, and for people that are thinking of doing something like this, unless you have the means yeah. and the and the and you're in the right place in life where you want to, because I've seen that I've seen guys do what you did yep. before, where they're like, you know, tech guys, and they're just like, I'm done, yeah. like I'm piecing out, and I'm just moving to the hills, and I don't know if I'll ever be seen again, kind of thing, and they mm -hmm. figure it out, Henry David Thoreau style, yep. and they're like, we'll see. Um, but there's there's these things where learn these handful of things and learn how to apply them right like and actually apply them like and test yourself on them like you can you can go to these courses and yep. do these things with like grow a, a plant yep <laughs> like learn Care how for to, it learn how to and, don't, don't kill it learn yeah. how to do it so it actually you know bears fruit literally mm -hmm. or whatever and then grow from there like maybe you don't have livestock like get a couple chickens if you have the ability yep. to do it. Like if you have the space to do it, learn how to do that without killing them. Yeah. Right. And you Inevitably likely you will, will. Yeah. <laughs> you likely will or whether or something else will, something else will, and you'll have to figure out how to protect them from stuff. Yep. But there's it, I can see how it seems overwhelming for a lot of people. And that prohibits people from ever starting yeah. this stuff too, where it's like, you can, it's just the living in the extremes. You, people either want to do everything at once yep. or they're like, no, I, I, I won't do it at all. And I, I think there's because there's this fear that they have to need these skills right away. Right. Yeah. And they're like, well, if I can't, then I'm just going to die. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they've just almost made peace with it at that yeah. point. Well, I think there's a lot of people just kind of going through the motions. That's what I was doing. Yeah. And I think that's common for people. It's, we're so conditioned to be provided for. Mm. It's it's never my problem. I mean, I've been living out there in one of the, well, it is the smallest rural livable community accessible by road in the lower 48 for four plus years. And I was still caught off guard by like the water situation. Yeah. You know, you're never going to be fully prepared. I mean, unless you you know, grab your loincloth in a tent and <laughs> right. you know, trek off into the Frank church and live in, or go on the show alone. Yeah, exactly. Like, and, be those and, guys. And that's great. And, uh, but that didn't match where I was at in my life. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't have the means to just quit everything. Like I still right. ride this line of, you know, I still work yeah. in the high tech industry you know, zoom Starlink are great things and allow me to do that right now. Um, to provide for yeah. my family and to be able to afford those things, sure. um, which is great, but that's not everybody. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you can't learn those skills and apply them, like you said. And I think doing it incrementally is, is fantastic. Yeah. If I had known what I knew now, of course, looking sure. back, I'd be like, huh, maybe I should have started that garden. You know, maybe I should have done this, that, or the other. And yeah. Those things you just, you don't know. But. Well, and I think people think that in order for them to survive, mm -hmm. they think that they can't do it in a suburban yeah. or city environment because they think if anything goes down or whatever it is, maybe it's maybe it's not like that dramatic. Right. Right. Maybe it's just the power's off for a few weeks. Yeah. Like it, it does kick back on, but a lot can happen in a few weeks. Yeah. Right. But if you're even remotely prepared for that situation it doesn't matter that you're in the city yeah. or if you're up in the middle of the mountains like you can still have all of these skills and apply them wherever you are yeah it doesn't have to be one or the other and i think people like they they want to get into this mode and that's what they think they need to do is like well if i'm going to learn all this stuff then i need to move 
away right. from all of this, all the people. And it's like, well, maybe. Well, it's not to. Like, you could also just maybe move 20 miles away to a smaller town. Yeah. Or, you know, or, or you don't have to do it at all. I mean, like, there's there's no one way to do any of this. But you do have to pay attention to, like, the situation where you are. Mm-hmm. Understand the area. Understand the people in that area. Like, the, the proclivities of the people in right. that area. Like, if it's going to be, like, there are some cities where, you know... It could be Mad Max It's going to be Mad Max real quick. And some cities will probably handle it a lot better than yeah. others, even if they're larger. And so, you have to take into account a lot of this stuff. And so, I think that's why it's such a cool concept for the book, first of all, is, like, to see how you went from that to where you are now. But then also that, like, you're still going through all of this, too. Yeah. And learning and refining and getting better at all this. And, like, you in 10 years like might be this grizzled old dude that Maybe. like yeah. get, that doesn't need any modern anything but it might be a version of you right now just much more competent yeah right like and i'm sure that's where you'll be but there's again i'll, I'll say it again like there's levels to all this and people generally want to go from like one to eight yeah and i, I think the <laughs> cool thing though is for people who are still living in suburbia or living in a you know congested area yeah the idea of prepper, like we were talking about, has really, in my mind, it might just be my lens and from where I'm sitting, has been destigmatized a lot mm. in the past five years. Yeah. It used to be like the, hey, you've got your bunker with all your freeze-dried food and you don't talk to anybody and you're kind of the weird, odd person out who's collecting ammo and guns, like you said at the beginning. Right. But now with like guys like Mike Glover, like I said, yeah. Tim Kennedy, um, Kyle Kingsbury, all these guys who are saying, hey, like I might be considered a prepper. Sure. But it's not prepping and... Like relative to who, though? You know what I mean? Like, but, but again, it's yeah. these skill sets. It's like, how do I ensure that my family, and I'm instilling the things into my kids of like... Yeah. We come from a place where you raise food, whether that's livestock, whether that's a garden, like, historically. Yeah. And you hunt for food. Yep. Let's start with those skills. Yep. How do you build some small incrementality to say, uh, if I can't go hunt at the grocery store anymore, how do I get food? Yeah. Like just basic questions. Not saying that you need to go and buy 50 head of cattle and move out in the middle of nowhere, but right. you know, even how do you start to source stuff from a local ranch? Yeah. How do you learn to do some basic hunting? And that brings up a good point too, like just the community aspect mm-hmm. of it, because that's the other mistake I see a lot of people make is they think they have to do everything themselves. Yeah. Where it's like, you don't have to be the guy that does everything. Like, you can have uh, a guy that has this thing mm-hmm. that you share, yeah. right? Whether it's like, he's the dairy cow guy. Yep. Like, that's where you get your milk. Yep. Or like, this guy has some something that's growing in his garden that you really like, that he grows excess of. Mm-hmm. You share with him. You trade. Like, you, you buy from this guy. Like, that's where... And when one of the guys is like the town doctor yep. right i mean like there's all of these roles that like make up a community and i think when things get so big you lose that direct connection to people in a community like a community in a city of 400,000 people is probably just like your handful of friends right it's not people that have roles yep you know and i think that's where the the way forward in a lot of these situations becomes really useful is find those people that are like, not to like say I'm using you for a purpose, but you need to be building relationships with people that can help. And you, and then you also have something that you can provide value up to them. Yeah. It's interesting. So like in the book, my catalyst for moving out into the middle of nowhere was trauma, right? It was a divorce. Yeah. And I went out with the attitude of, you know, I just watched Jeremiah Johnson for the 40th time. I want to go be a mountain man. I want to go be alone. Yeah. And that sense got battered by mother nature really quickly. It's like, no, you actually need a community to survive. So I like went from the 400,000 person city being like, there is no community here to this town where I'm like, I'm just going to be alone. And quickly I realized, like you said, I have so many gaps in my skill sets to survive that I had to reach out to the community. And it was beautiful that this little enclave in the middle of the woods in the mountains of Idaho was really like a good 2%. We had NASA scientists, we have, you know, gunsmiths, we have 
EMTs, yeah. and doctors. We have, um, you know, old fire chiefs. Yep. You know, all these people who bring these different skill sets to the table who then quickly become family. And you do start to see, okay, where can I provide value to other people? And, you know, it is an innate, natural, yeah. it's not a barter system, but like we're helping each other out. Like if I need something, they will be at my house yeah. within minutes and vice versa. Yep. And then you go to, to, to transition it to now like you have children. Yep. Right. So all of these things that you're also learning, like you said, now I've got to include mm -hmm. them. So they so they have a much longer life learning these things yeah. than the last, you know, five years or whatever it's been that you didn't start until your mid thirties. Yep. Right. And so how do you go about bringing that to them? Cause your, your oldest is still a toddler. Yeah. You said, so, I mean, like they're, they're in the place where it's like, they're probably just getting to this where they start to understand mm -hmm. what's happening, but they want to be involved. Yep. And it's like, how do you, how do you guys go about bringing that to, to them? And how will you go about bringing that to them? Yeah. I mean, for, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> Nobody does, man. <laughs> I wish I could say like we had this grand plan, but right. I mean, uh, we've been of the ilk of just include them. It, yeah. It's been beautiful because our toddler and our one-year-old, it's, they cry when you bring them inside. And that's beautiful to me. Um, literally, every time you hit the stairs, come inside at the cabin, they're, ah. mm -hmm. but they just go outside. They see what we're doing. Like I was boiling traps the other day and my daughter was helping me get wood to make a wood burn yeah. or a fire to boil in this big trough all my traps. And then she helps me hang them. It's just normalizing things for them. And some people might think that's weird, but take my daughter on my trap lines. Yeah. She helps me pull dead beaver out of the water and then she'll sit in the sled and just like pet him and be like, little beaver. Yeah. And then we eat it. Yeah. And she likes it and she's like, but yeah. she doesn't know any different. Yeah. Like that. I think that's where, uh, that's probably where people are hesitant. Yeah. Like introducing stuff. They think it's going to traumatize yeah. kids, but it's like, if they grow up around it, they don't know any different. Yeah. Like that's just how it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't know any different. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like we, we go, we, you know, flesh beaver. Yeah. You know, it's my wife and I, we sit there and we were hooping them like that one right there. And yeah. our daughter's right there. And it's funny because then her, ironically, her favorite stuffed animal that she sleeps with every night is a beaver. She's like, I love the beaver. And then she'll go in there and she'll like pet him on the wall and, yeah. you know, she's like, eat it and all this stuff. So it's an interesting perspective for me to see how she's internalizing it. And it's not from a place of, Oh no, we're killing my stuffed animal. It's like, oh, this is just what we do. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a much healthier relationship with it, I yeah. would think, too, because I think with kids specifically, mm -hmm. animals get very Disney-fied. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so they if you grow up around the sense of actually telling them what they are yeah. and how we use their their meat, their pelts, their mm -hmm. everything, why like how we harvest them, how we you know. And being straight up and saying, like, we kill mm -hmm. these, like, you have to be very purposeful and, like, not beat around the bush by making it softer. Yeah. It's like, no, we're taking a life. Yeah. And they need to understand, the, like, the gravity of that. So maybe two years old, they don't. Yeah. But, like, there will be a point where, you know, my, my oldest is just turned four. And last year when I brought home my, my deer, which was my first, like, large game animal that I had ever killed, like that was the first thing he kind mm -hmm. of, he, he saw it and I had already like boned it out. So he saw just the, the, the skull and it still had some tissue and some scrap and stuff on it and like uh, eyeballs still in it, you know, mm -hmm. and like he saw it and he was fine, but he started asking me questions. He's like, so was like, how did, how did you shoot him? Mm -hmm. And I told him the story and stuff. I'm like, well, this is, and he helped me do all the meat processing because nice. I did all the meat processing myself. So he was helping me pack meat into the grinder and he was helping me, you know, mix the fat into it to cut it and all that stuff. So like they're way more receptive yeah. and they understand things a lot better than I think people will give them credit for. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean, I have our two year olds pretty dang perceptive. Yeah. Um, but it just seems so natural. Yeah. Know? Cause we're also just outside so much like where we live, like, she wakes up, she can look out the back window and 
given the time of year, she might see 10 elk yeah, or deer or fox or coyotes or whatever is out rummaging around. So she has this relationship of these things live here. Um, bear. We had like 13 different bear um, in our backyard this past year on That's trail good. cams or everything know. else. So it's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're at. Yeah. So we'll, we'll hook up on that. Too, yeah. So. yeah. Uh, I actually do want to get into some of that stuff too. Like, uh, when you got into the hunting part of things, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, a whole separate world, Yep. even from the stuff that you were already learning how to do, right? Like that's a separate set of skills. Bow hunting is even yep. more so, right? Cause you have to get even closer. Right. And then, but you also do a lot of trapping, mm-hmm. which is kind of a dying thing. Like from a skill standpoint like they're just i you don't and maybe it's because the guys that are trappers aren't the ones that are on social media pretty much which you know because they're probably all for the most part older guys that have just been doing it forever but i do know a couple of guys around our age Mm -hmm. um that are doing it because that was what they grew up around and uh i've i was told actually recently oh it was by uh drew kohlhofer from selway archery yep and uh, he had said that trappers often make the best hunters because they know how to get where animals are going to be. Yeah. Like they know where they're going to be and they know how to get to the areas where they actually will be standing, obviously. Yep. So it's like they reading terrain and reading sign and reading tracks and doing all this stuff is, is really important and really good skill. So that seems like a skill that you had to have just been like yeah let's just do it is that kind of like what happened <laughs> yeah well, it was one of those things that was not on my radar when i moved to yeah. idaho and it was going down this path of like bow hunting whether that's elk antelope deer trying to figure that out and then where we were at um with the 35 people there used to be two trappers in town so i was talking with these old timers and they're like yeah i don't really get out but we have you know wolf martin coyote beaver otter and just started listing all these animals and it wasn't that i had an interest in you know killing animals for fun it was you know hearing their stories and how they went about it because there's such a misconception on trapping that it's just this indiscriminate you know pursuit and you know the the teeth don't exist those are illegal there's not like a caricature of a trap they're spacers and you can get your dog in it get it out and they're no worse for the wear um but the idea, like you said, to get a canine or a mountain lion or whatever it is, or bobcat to step on a you know, six inch by six inch piece of metal and say 3000 acres of wildland yeah. is an insane pursuit. You can't just like throw it out there and hope that they're going to step on it. And, and you know, if you're following rules, there's, there's rules around baiting and sure. stuff. So it's not like you're just putting a pile of meat and then, you know putting traps all around Doing like the bugs bunny thing where it's the stick in the box exactly and it's got the little thing in there um (laughs) but trapping kind of taken over my heart like if you asked me what i am now i'd say a trapper yeah um because a you have to spend way more time out there like you said you have to figure out where animals are they're so smart like wolves are the smartest animal i've ever encountered like so much smarter than me you're not the first person to tell me that either it's crazy yeah but even beaver like i trapping beaver is my favorite thing in the world because mm-hmm. you're in the water it's, i don't fly fish but i imagine it's the same feeling like you're in the winter you've got waders on you're out there yep. trying to track sign but they also get trap shy real quick yeah you miss one the chance of you getting like another one in that they're colony, not coming back right yeah. well they're coming back but they know you're trapped right and then they'll just like you'll see like piles of beaver crap right beside your trap just for insult <laughs> for injury you know right. it's like okay um but yeah i, I think it's true i haven't seen where i've I've actually had way more success trapping than big game hunting. So I'm still waiting for that translation sure. of, uh, you know, being good at trapping translates to big right. game hunting, but yeah. to be seen, but it's a great pursuit. It's, it's a different connection with an animal. Like you said, looking at sign, looking at tracks, figuring out saying like thinking about, okay, this is their pattern so far. Yeah. Where are they going to be? Where can I place a trap, a snare, a mm-hmm. ton of bear and, and that, yeah, and I think, like you said, it's just a very misunderstood mm-hmm. thing anymore. Yeah. Like, obviously, a lot of the stuff didn't used to be misunderstood because it was just part of what everyday life did. Um, but there's this idea that it's cruel 
mm-hmm. or inhumane or whatever, because people again think of like the cartoon, like giant, you know, yeah. big old teeth thing that goes clink right around like the ankle of something, and then it bleeds out yep. and whatever. And then, and like you said, that that's not what it is yeah. anymore. Like because it still is a regulated mm-hmm. way of taking an animal. Like yep. it has evolved a bit to wherever it is now. So like, what is some of the, what are some of those differences with, with where it is now versus like what people generally probably think that it is. Like you said, the regulation. So first off, like, you know, well, I think people misunderstand the drivers too Mm. for trapping. Like there's meat, like we eat the beaver, we trap, we don't eat all the canines. Like there's definitely trichinella. There's other stuff that, um, you know, might prevent you from wanting to eat the animal, but using every bit of it. But, uh, it's interesting for people in Idaho every March. Yeah. Every January, March, there's Idaho fur sale. It's usually in Glens Ferry. So Idaho Trapper Association helps put it on. So we have a a great group of guys and gals who go down there and sell fur. Um, But what's interesting is that it's the market, the irony of the market Mm. of who's buying fur. It's all luxury. Of course. So you have, (laughs) you have representatives from, you know, Versace. Michael Kors, all these people who are out there buying fur for their fancy bag or coats and bags, of course, you know, Canada goose, those, you know, super expensive ones. Those are coyote fur. Yep. Um, I think they're changing that now they're going synthetic, but you know, that was after a lot of pressure from other people. Um, but it's, it's interesting. And then the beaver fur price has always, has been low for the past few years. This past year, skyrocketed relatively yeah uh and you know why hmm. uh stetson making all of their uh, beaver felt cowboy hats on the back of yellowstone becoming so popular of course has driven that up of course so it's just interesting for the demonization of it in a lot of ways for what's actually driving the need for people who are doing it for like i do it as a hobby right but there are people who are still out there making is their living, livelihood, yeah. You know, trapping fur, yeah, and that's what's driving it. And uh, it's it's the ultimate irony. But for me, it was more along the lines of understanding animals, and then having furs to start to figure out how do you make clothes. That was what was interesting to me. It's like, okay, if I'm going all the way down this path of how you can be self sufficient, food, water, this, like, oh, well, you have to clothe yourself. Yeah. Like, how do you then right. take an animal? Do the tanning, yeah. make it something that it's not stiff as a board like that, which is what half of my furs come out to be anyways. Right. And then use it for clubs, yep. mittens, things like that. That's yeah, there's always one other thing that I you don't think about right. until you have to think about it. Right. <laughs> like most people just think, Oh, I have clothes. I'm like, yeah, but what what happens when you don't yeah. anymore? <laughs> like what happens when something tears? So six months after repair. everything shuts down and your Under Armour shirt's got holes in it and it's not quite keeping you warm anymore. Well, not only, but like even the, the skill of sewing, right? learning how to repair things. Like mm-hmm. you don't always have to go out. Like it, again, we dramatize a lot of this stuff. It's like, oh, I got to go, you know, full animal skin, everything. Yeah. It's like, or you could learn how to sew. Right. Like, and just patch things. Like that'll probably get you by for a long time. Yep. The, the trapping thing is a really fascinating thing to me because it's, I I think it's, it's a subset of animals Mm -hmm. that people generally have a problem with being taken, being killed. Right. Cause like, even if when you're talking to people who are anti hunting or like they're okay with hunting in this mitigated form, it's like, okay, I can understand deer overpopulation and it's like i'm okay with deer i'm okay with elk but they're like but those are the people that freak when Mm. you bring about predators yeah like can't do wolves yeah can't do bears Mm -hmm. right like there's the where the lines are drawn is always very interesting to me when you're like it's like that billboard you've seen that billboard where it's like it lines up a bunch of different animals and it's like deer cow or and it's like where do you draw the line on what yeah. you consume and then like the meme is like the guy puts one like right next to the horse and the dog and like <laughs> yeah. everything else over here he's like i put it about right here <laughs> yeah. like i don't need anything over here but there is a line that everybody has and it's always interesting to me to see where that is and and oftentimes i don't think there's a lot of thought mm-hmm. that goes behind why people have that line there because it's usually at the 
driven by misconception. Yeah. Like bears and wolves, wolves specifically here in Idaho, like, and wolves everywhere in the Northwest yeah. are like hot button. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Yellowstone, that was like a whole story arc within one of the seasons is about like this whole wolf yep. accidentally killing one of the wolves in a place it shouldn't have been. And now as soon as that gets found out, you have organization on top of organization, like lawsuits and yeah. all this stuff. But they destroy stuff, oh, populations yeah. of animals. They and they decimate. It's not like they're just, you know, one twosy. No, and I, you know, buddy of mine, Zach Owens said he literally watched a pack of wolves take down a cow elk, mm-hmm. and then the next morning, on the bridge right next to it, take down another one and didn't even eat the one that they killed the day before. Yeah, it's a sport. Thing. Like it literally is in some of these places and there's so many of them. Well, we have five packs around Atlanta and if you drive from Boise to Atlanta, Idaho in the winter on the Middle Fork, yeah. Almost every time you'll come across three or four different health kills from wolves. <sighs> Crazy. Just like half eaten. Yeah. And yeah. I mean it's a pest. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. like the and maybe they're not pests as we would generally think, but their behavior and what they do unchecked. Yeah. Like they need to be managed just like every other game to help everything else flourish. Yeah. And I mean, there's a reason like you can go in Idaho, resident or non-resident and buy a wolf tag at the grocery store. And in second one, yeah. pretty cheap too. Yeah. And, but the interesting thing is it's also going back to how smart they are, mm-hmm. we are enabling every hunter. So pretty much any elk hunter who comes in, bear hunter, whatever, you're going to buy a wolf tag. Yeah. The chances of you seeing one and being able to take a shot at it is almost zero. Well, in Idaho too, you you can you can use your yeah. elk tag as a wolf tag and yep. you'll get reimbursed with another elk tag if mm-hmm. you end up taking a wolf instead. Well, for like, so there's a foundation for wildlife management. An Idaho-based organization okay. for um, wolf, and they actually reimburse you for every wolf you take. Yeah, remember so and a good amount, two thousand bucks. Yeah, where I'm at, so you know you can get two thousand dollars per wolf, you know, just by being a part of that organization. And the problem is like, there's not a lot of reimbursements happening because they're so hard to either. And, it's opportunistic. You yeah. might run into one. You might be able to take a shot. Great. But like trapping is a dedicated thing where you're having to be out there 40, 50 days during the season to really even have a chance. Yeah. That's the thing people have the, they see like, oh, you're getting paid to go kill wolves. And it's like, that doesn't make it easier to no. kill wolves. Yeah. Like the reason that they're getting reimbursed that much is because it's so hard. It's so remote. It's so remote and they're yeah. so smart. Yeah. Like it's so, and my buddy Zach, he's he's been hunting them for years yeah and he's gotten i mean he's taken a handful of really good ones yeah um but he's like it's the hardest hunting i do yep throughout the year because like if you get into within 500 yards of them yep like that's amazing yeah because that's how smart they are yeah they're 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 hard to find but i mean it goes back to the whole anthropomorphizing of all animals yeah even otters yep um, it's an interesting one because otters are so dang cute, <laughs> yeah. but you know, they're called river wolves Yeah, because they are aggressive. They decimate the fish and trout populations. For instance, up in Atlanta, we had to get, you know, some permits to get some taken because they were sitting at the bottom of our fish ladder. Oh, wow. <laughs> Crazy. You just go into town. Um, so it's those kinds of things you don't think about. And speaking of otters, like the lady in Montana, who got attacked floating the river. Yeah. Got her ear ripped off and everything. I saw that. Yeah. I forgot about that. It was like brutal. Oh yeah. Like just mauled. Um, GoFundMe still happening, I think. So I mean, she's still recovering, but these animals are wild. Yeah. All of them, even down to pine Martin, cute little pine Martin, rip your face off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the part of it that I wanted to get into too is, um, because we're going to talk, separately about yep. bears some more um, because that's one of the things that I really want to get into because I've come to, it's a weird relationship that you have with animals mm-hmm. as a hunter, right? Because you do take their lives and like we understand what that means yep. 
but we also truly love those animals. animals more than most people who say they do yeah because of our connection like our immediate connection to them yep right like and bears are one of those animals where i've just in the last couple of years have grown to appreciate mm -hmm. them i think more than anything else and i just think they're the coolest things ever yeah and and it sounds weird that I say that and like, it makes me want to go hunt them. Yeah. Right. But that's my connection to them because it's it, like, they're just amazing. And so you have a lot of cool interactions with them around your area. There's a lot of them up in mm -hmm. your area. You were showing me, you sent me some pictures of a couple that you had on some cams and stuff. But like, do you have a similar kind of relationship to bears specifically? Because it seems like you and I were similar in that, yeah. in that regard. It was one of those things too was never on my radar to hunt Yeah. previously. Again, my whole journey started later, but even when I came up to Idaho, and, and it's similar to you, it's like when you start to be in an area where you're around bears and you hear stories of bears or you start to see them. And for me, it was like, now you look out your back door and there's a bear and you just sit and watch in awe of like this animal going around and pawing and how they live here. And then they're just fun to watch. Yeah. And then you put out yeah. cameras and you start to see bears and you just get excited about getting them on camera. <laughs> yeah. and you're like, Oh, that's, that's Tommy. Yeah. And you start to name them, <laughs> you know, he's back, right. you know, and you start to see these patterns of what they're doing and their paths they make. Um, and it just becomes a really cool, like you said, interaction, but then, you know, hunting, especially if you're doing it with a bow, that means if you name Tommy and you want to go take Tommy and put Tommy on the table, <laughs> You know, you got to go get within 30 get yards <laughs> yeah. of Tommy. Yeah. And that becomes a pursuit. It's like, okay, now I can start to think like this bear. I understand patterns. Where do I need to be? They've got a great sense of smell. And it brings in all these other elements that get your brain going of like, this seems like an impossible task. Yeah. How can I do it? Yeah. And then you go pursue it and likely you'll fail. I've done that. I, I missed a bear at 40 yards this year. Um. And, but it was so cool. Like afterwards, like not an ounce of like regret or like, oh, right. You know, I should have been Cam Haynes and shooting 400 a day. Yards. Yeah. <laughs> and they nailed 92 yards away. <laughs> but at the same time, it was just this awesome experience because I yeah. watched this bear come in and rummage. And, you know, I was sitting in a spot where I was like, okay, I hope he's going to get close. And he did. And I was like, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, and then he like ran off and woof, woof. Yep. You know, like a dog almost barking at me. Like, all right, we'll see you next year, buddy. But, <laughs> right. Uh, it's just a cool experience. Yeah, they're very, they're, like you said, just watching them. Mm -hmm. They're just cool yeah. to, to watch. And they're another one of those animals that I like. I think because we know that they're intelligent. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a, a, a challenge of who's smarter yeah type of thing right like it's almost I, always the animal it's, it's almost always the animal yeah. right but i think that there's some I, there's differences in how people view like the intelligence of a deer mm -hmm. versus uh, a bear and yeah. was, i remember when uh a handful of years ago we were up at an elk camp and there was a handful of older guys with us and one of the older guys said he's like you know i i don't have a problem with people who hunt them i, I it's just like it's just not for me mm -hmm. and i asked him why and he goes it was because when I, I remember a handful of years ago, it's so like 10, 20 years ago, it's like the first time I saw one that was skinned out hanging in a tree. Looks like a human. He's like, looks like a man up yeah. there. <laughs> he's like, it just put this kind of like weird feeling. And I'm like, I, I get that. And he's like, but you know, there's a level to that competition almost yeah. that you have with this animal. It's like, you're not like me, but you're more similar to me than this deer is yeah. in a lot of ways. And I think that maybe heightens the intensity of it a little bit more for people. Yeah. I agree with you. The first bear I took, everything I've done, I want to use the whole animal. So I, yeah. I tanned the hide of my first bear, That's cool. you know, did the skull. Um, did you do like a rug with uh, it or did you do? No, it's just raw skinned out yeah. and tan and it's on our wall at the cabin and it looks like yogi bear was running full speed and just kind of splatted against the wall it's like not <laughs> the best thing in the world right but it's tanned and it's up there yeah um but when we were boning out the hands for the 
first time. Yeah. You take that out. It looks like human hands. Yeah, like, like if somebody had walked into my cabin at that point and had not seen the bear hide and just saw these like hands hanging there, they would have been like, okay, hi, Dexter. Like, nice to meet you. <laughs> right. So there's that element for sure. And you do, uh, when, when you've hunted bears, you, you still bow hunt bears, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. you were, cause you were talking like you're just getting into rifle yep. stuff mm-hmm. lately and did some long range stuff too. What was the driver behind wanting to do that? Cause most people do the opposite. Yeah. Like they start rifle and then want to get into like, and get close range. Like as you go down, that's why, like, that's why I started with rifle and I, I still hunt, I still yeah. hunt rifle. Um, but I got into the compound archery and then recurve yeah even you're from all there. over the place too i'm all over the place yeah uh, just circumstances i mean yeah I, I didn't grow up shooting big rifles long sure. range so it was just one of those things the bow when i was learning before i moved to idaho it was in a neighborhood so it made more sense yep i had access and i could put up a target and start to learn yeah and then the rifle thing just came about with uh you know i was gifted a rifle from you know, a company that i'd worked with and yeah that was just like, Hey, like that broke that barrier. Yeah. And then I was able to find a, a long range course here and go shoot. But it's one of those things. Also misconception. I had a misconception that rifle hunting was easy. easy. Like bow hunting is right. Yeah. But now living in the back country, like it doesn't matter with bow or rifle, especially in the seasons, an 800 yard shot on an animal or 400 yard shot. That's insane. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. They all have their unique, challenges yeah. that it does i mean there's a level where you're not as close but yeah. that makes the shot harder right to make you know i mean so it's like there's this trade-off where it's people will think oh you all you got to do is get within 500 yards yeah, like you that's put not your, hunting and then you just put your reticle it's on like it. okay but have you ever shot a target 500 yards away yeah. <laughs> like that's not easy either well that's what blew my mind it's yeah. like all the, the windage you know yep. the moas and yep. doing the like, it, it's math yes you're doing math. Pretty math. high level math too. Yeah. And pretty quickly. Yeah. Because you only have a small window to make something happen usually. And, and you, gotta... you have a little bit of a, just like a judgment call and win. Yep. You might have your Kestrel with you or whatever, but you <laughs> right. don't know what it is down there where yeah. the animal's at. Totally. So it, it, it's, it's tough. All, everything's tough. That's, that's such a good way to, to just wrap it all up. Just, yeah. Everything's hard. That's yeah, pretty just, much it. The take, theme of everything. Take away. Yep. Learn something. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy it while you're doing it. Yeah. And yeah, become more resilient. That's, Turn a little more feral. Yeah, boom. That's where we're going to wrap it up right there. But dude, I had a blast this morning training and chatting and hanging out and stuff. So thanks for making time. Yeah. And um, Why don't you plug the books? You got multiple yeah, and where people can get them and follow you and do all that stuff. Cool. So I, I am new to Instagram relatively. So it's at let me die learning, which is a um, great name. Yeah. It's a, something <laughs> to live by, I guess, or die by. Um, Turning Pharaohs, the book. Yep. Um, I did write a few fiction books this year. You can check them out on Amazon too. If you find Turning Feral or my name, you can click on it. Yep. But the series is called The Bone Scraper. It's Western. Kind of like Louis Lamore meets Quentin Tarantino with real Idaho history mixed in. So that's awesome. Well, dude, thanks, man. I appreciate awesome. you making the time. Ditto. Awesome. All right, brother. Uh, let's do this.